Hello, welcome to the UCL News Podcast. I'm Claire. And I'm George. On this week's podcast, Henry goes to chat to budding entrepreneur Chester Moges and Claire about the perils of starting up a new business in the current economic climate. And we also find out more about Buried on Campus, the Grant Museum's new exhibition. But first, the news. Old people are a benefit to the economy and society, according to a new report from the UCL School of Pharmacy. The report, titled Active Ageing, Live Long and Prosper, refutes the view that older people are a major source of economic problems, providing evidence that the benefits of living longer will outweigh the additional health and social care costs of population ageing. So basically, the take-home message is stock up on your cod liver oil tablets and brace yourself for working well into your 90s. Hopefully not your 90s. I hope not. I don't want to <laughs> Hopefully work that we long. won't be making that many uh, Star Trek puns either. But anyway, um, last Thursday marked the 50th anniversary of the UK's first tentative steps into space with the launch of the satellite Ariel 1, which helped make us the world's third spacefaring nation after Russia and the USA. Um, UCL is interested in, in this satellite because um, it carried experiments devised and operated by scientists at the Mullard Space Science Laboratory. Ariel 1 was launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida, aboard a Thor Delta rocket on the 26th of April 1962. The UCL experiments on board included those measuring solar radiation and the density and temperature of electrons and ions in the atmosphere. Although the satellite was damaged by an American high-altitude nuclear test called Starfish, the mission heralded the beginning of the UK's now thriving satellite sector and its history of international collaboration in space. It's a really, really cool mission, and there's some cool pictures again on the UCL thing. It looks really old school, like something out of... um, Doctor Who or something. So from satellites and space to Star Wars, it's uh, not often that Jabba the Hutt makes an appearance in performance art, but that's precisely where UCL Anthropology and Slade School of the Fine Art graduate Spartacus Chetwind got her inspiration for one of her works. Shortlisted for this year's Turner Art Prize for her five-hour performance piece titled Odd Man Out, Chetwind describes her approach as unbridled enthusiasm and bottled mayhem. Living and working in a South London nudist colony, her works have been seen at the Saatchi Gallery and Tate Britain, so definitely keep an eye out for her work. Yep, sounds a bit cold in that South London nudist (laughs) colony to me. So that's all the news for this show, but stay tuned to hear Henry's chat with Chester Mojay Sinclair about being a young entrepreneur. But first, in 2010, some construction workers were building an access trench in the UCL quad, and they came across a very large collection of human remains. So after the police had established that it wasn't of criminal interest, forensic anthropologists Wendy Birch and Christine King worked with the Grant Museum to put together this new exhibition about what the collection is, why it was buried, and what we can learn from it. So Claire went down to the museum along with Nick Dorr, UCL Digital Manager, to find out more. Well, so kind of, I guess the, the punchline of the exhibition is um, that at least some of the remains um, strongly suggest that they're from a, a medical teaching collection um, over 100 years ago. And what, what about the bones suggests that? Well, there's, they were kind of, firstly, they were buried essentially in lots, so they weren't laid out like a, you imagine a grave, but huge, just big piles of bones, essentially. But some of them have got writing on, um, which obviously you wouldn't expect from your average um, dead body. Many of them say signs of dissection. So some of the things we've got on display are kind of a a skull cap, which is perfectly sawn um, through in the way you might remove the brain. Um, There are some what we call aging panels. So 
the same part of the body, in this case the knee, um, from different age individuals all together, which you use mm. to, to train someone how, how old that knee is. Uh, so one thing I was wondering about was basically what do you do when you discover 7,394 fragments? Uh, where do you even start trying to identify them or put them together? It's, it's really amazing actually. If you go into Wendy's lab, these, where she's working on this collection, they're kind of laid out on, um, actually laid out on human dissection tables because that's the tables they have in her lab. Um, but there's They've, what they've done is identified pretty much every single fragment of bone and it could only be a kind of centimetre square bit of bone and they said, oh yeah, this is this part of this bone. And they were all kind of arranged in, in bits of what they are. So a huge amount of work um, Wendy and Christine have done on, on identifying everything and working out what diseases or if there are diseases on there, what, how old it is, whether it's male or female, to, to, as far as they can. It's, it's quite incredible. Um, and in the exhibition you've got um basically a whole skeleton laid out but it's made up of different bones and then you've got a different um, case. Can you explain what is going on in, in the two cases? Yeah, so there's, there's the, the, the skeleton essentially almost a whole, whole human skeleton from, put together from many different individuals and that is showing some of the different things that you can learn from an anatomical teaching collection in that, so how to age certain parts of the body, um, certain areas of disease that you can see, um, when certain things fuse, how different things are preserved once they've been buried. Um, so the okay. kind of lessons that have been learned from, from the skeleton. Okay, so kind of like clues to becoming a forensic exactly. archaeologist, a bit exactly. like that. Yeah. And then the big main case is, is about the research that they've been doing on it. So it's, it's telling a few different stories. Some of them really cool things like there's a leg bone that's been glued together from 27 different tiny fragments. So it's a, um, a, a jigsaw puzzle and also a couple mm. of skulls of similar stories. Yeah. Um, I've noticed that there's a bovril jar in one of the corners which seems to have played quite a large part. <laughs> Can you explain a bit more about that? Sure, so um, in the soil among all of the bones were a few uh, artefacts, human artefacts and clay pipes, um, but also this bovril jar which is inside another jar, which is a bit strange. But the bovril jar is really important in that it's um, helped us to age the collection, so the date when it was buried. And the Wendy and Christine have contacted Bovril Company and said, when did you make this jar? And um, they've come up with some dates which have helped us prove a minimum age for it. Okay, because that wouldn't be what you usually think that archaeologists use to date collections. No, you no, think they've got some exactly. kind of very clever, not that that isn't clever, no, but yeah, very high-tech <laughs> very high got, tech method. Okay, um, so um, well, I guess the obvious question is, do you have any idea of why somebody or anyone would bury a selection of human bone fragments in a university quadrangle. It's <laughs> a good question. It's a very good question. Unfortunately, we, they haven't got um, a good answer for that yet. Okay. It's, it's something that obviously Wendy and the team are still looking at. But um, one interesting thing I was told is that a lot of the ends of all of the bones have been smashed, um, which perhaps suggests they're trying to get the metal pins that held it together if the bones were articulated into a skeleton, possibly for some kind of war effort. Um, it seems like a very long way to go mm. to get quite yeah, a small amount of metal. But unfortunately through the years a lot of museums or I should say collections in, in universities were disposed of um, mm. sometimes um, I guess burial might seem the, the easiest solution. Okay. 
<laughs> but it's a bit would like have been, sweeping it under the carpet. A bit like sweeping like... the carpet, but we are talking about <laughs> over 100 years ago. Yeah. And we don't know who did it. Sure. Uh, my name's Chester Mojay Sinclair. Uh, I'm a graduate from UCL. I graduated last year with a degree in philosophy. Uh, I started my social enterprise charity checkout while still at UCL. Received a lot of support in the founding of the company. Uh, it's been a fantastic experience and the future looks really good for, for charity checkout six months out of university now. So yeah, it's a very exciting time. So what does charity checkout do? Charity Checkout is a giving portal for small and medium-sized charities. It's like a PayPal for charities. So we take care of gift aid and the tax element of, of being a charity and receiving donations. So essentially we allow, or we are the people behind the Donate Now button on a charity's website. So there's nothing like this out there already? No, I mean, our nearest competitor is, is probably PayPal. Um, they very well directed uh, you know directed towards the e-commerce market there's special elements about giving that make it different to uh, a normal transaction so we we take care of the gift aid admin on behalf of a charity simplify the fundraising process for them and we have a very clever piece of software which is specifically designed for fundraising too for running appeals and campaigns that the charity can use to accept donations via their website or newsletters or email footers so um, no it, it is a unique idea in Europe there are similar things in the US but it's it's definitely the first the first here and what's the response been from from charities it's been a really fantastic response we've we've got about five charities signing up every week at the moment uh, that's growing quite quickly. We're hiring new staff at the moment, uh, and we expect that as the sales team sales team grows, that that will that that will multiply. Um, so yeah, it's it's really it's really positive at the moment, and the response rate, you know, the responses have been fantastic. So yeah. So how are you looking to grow Charity Checkout in the future? The initial strategy is to to build the the sales team, uh, also to try and form more more partnerships. Uh, we're the recommended uh, provider for payment processing with Akivo, um, which is the Association of Chief Executives in the voluntary oh, wow. sector. Yeah, so we're looking to try and work on a lot more relationships with that. Um, we're talking to one of the large banks, one of the large UK banks, about offering the service to to their charity customers. And yeah, we're having a few other discussions with similar organisations who can recommend us. But it, the growth strategy is, is fundamentally built around um, the sales team. So did you always think that you might become an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I was interested in business from quite an early age. Uh, actually, so much so I almost didn't come to university. It, it was a close decision. I thought that it might set me back three years in, in terms of my sort of business ambitions. But I was quite wrong about that. I, I, I thought I could balance both a degree um, and and start a company in that time and it turned out that you know my time at university was it was a brilliant time for me to grow and experience um, various things but also to get a little bit more experience in a safe environment while still being at university that I think has really prepared me now for for being a you know a full-time entrepreneur if, if, if you will. So you were studying your degree and then you thought that you wanted to set up your own business and so did you what kind of support did you get from UCL? Yeah, I actually came to UCL with 
the business idea um, for the first site that my company launched. And I entered something called the London Entrepreneurship Challenge in the first two or three months I was at UCL. So we received a lot of support initially from UCL Advances through that scheme and then later the Bright Ideas Fund, which is kind of an investment fund for slightly more advanced but still very early stage businesses. Uh, and from there we, we, we took the idea, we built the website um, and then our experiences over the last sort of year and a half of running that led to Charity Checkout, uh, which, is, which is now our commercial venture. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, it was very, very important time, the founding of the business and the support that I got from UCL. So what advice would you give to other budding entrepreneurs, either at UCL or, or other universities? I mean, I would say the best piece of advice I can give to, to a student entrepreneur is to try and get something out there as quickly as possible. You know, it doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to be complete. But you need to, if you have an idea, you need to try and get, get it out there and deliver something as soon as you can because you'll get feedback. And, you know, while you're a student, it's a very safe time to be experimenting with, with business ideas uh, and to be creative. Um, you know, what is the worst that can happen? That's what I always say. 